0: Welcome. Today we're going to be taking a dive, maybe not a deep dive, but at least a medium dive into the topic of comparative philosophy, uh, the comparison of philosophies from different world traditions. Specifically, I'm going to be talking today about a very interesting book that I read about a month and a half ago called How the World Thinks A Global History of Philosophy by Julian Baghini. Before I Plunge into my discussion of the book though, I would like to acknowledge our sponsors for today's episode. Quent Cordaire Fine Art has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years. Specializing in romantic realist paintings and sculptures, the gallery's collection emphasizes themes which celebrate the moments of happiness, joy, and success possible to man on earth. Acquire art you will want to live with by visiting them online at cordaire.com or in their Napa, California, and Jackson, Wyoming locations. The new Ayn Rand portrait prints have arrived. You can visit the link in the description and the the pinned comment to get yours today. For every print purchased with the code ARCUK, Quent Cordaire Fine Art will donate $25 to the Ayn Rand Centre UK. Quent Cordaire Fine Art is celebrating their 27-year anniversary this month. Listeners can call Linda Cordair to learn about the anniversary special. Uh, The phone number is 307-264-1964. We greatly appreciate your support of the work we do here at the Ayn Rand Centre UK. Before I get into Baghini's book, How the World Thinks, let me say a little bit about my own motivation for reading this book. There isn't a lot of discussion in the objectivist literature about non-Western traditions of philosophy. To the best of my knowledge, there is Scott MacDonald's excellent work on Chinese philosophy, politics, culture, and I warmly recommend his Ocon Talks, uh, New Ideal Live discussions on the subject. But, but aside from that, in Dr. Peikoff's history of philosophy and in some of the secondary literature that many of us are familiar with, like Wilhelm Wimtelbond, W.T. Jones, there isn't a lot of discussion of some of these other non-Western traditions of philosophy. So I wanted to understand a little bit about what it is that makes Western philosophy distinctive by learning a little bit about some of these Middle Eastern and Far Eastern traditions. So I'm going to say a little bit, first of all, about the author of the book, and then I'll talk a little bit about the book, some of its strengths, as well as some of the challenges that I had with some of its arguments. So first of all, the author, Julian Begini, he's a British philosopher. He was born in, and raised in Kent in the United Kingdom. His father was an Italian immigrant and his mother was English. He graduated with a PhD in philosophy from University College London. And, but he's not an academic philosopher. He's not one. He doesn't write in, a, in an ivory tower style. He's, he's actually written more than 20 books on various topics in philosophy. And actually, Beghini describes himself as a journalist of philosophy. His books tend to be geared towards a general readership, a non-specialist readership. And thank goodness for this. His style of writing is very clear. And I think he writes in a way that's engaging to a non-technical, non-specialist audience. His own motivation for writing this particular book, and so How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy was released in 2018. And in the introduction to the book, he describes how when he was doing his PhD in philosophy, he was learning a lot about philosophy in the continental European tradition in the Anglo-American tradition, but there's this, this whole world of philosophy outside of that, which he never learned about. And so he says our modern departments of philosophy, our university departments of philosophy really should be calling themselves departments of Western philosophy because they're only focusing on this very, very narrow aspect of the subject. It's important to stress that Begini does not consider himself to be an expert on these other traditions that he talks about. Uh, And this is an important point. One could easily spend an entire lifetime becoming an expert on, say, Middle Eastern philosophy or Indian philosophy or Chinese philosophy. What this book is presenting is a kind of a holistic overview of these different traditions and how they relate to each other and how they interact. Which which is fine. The book gave me exactly what I was looking for, kind of a bird's eye view of global traditions and philosophy. So what Julian Beghini actually did is he read many of the key texts, the primary sources and secondary sources in Islamic philosophy, Hindu philosophy, Confucian, uh, Taoist and, and other traditions. But most interestingly, he traveled around the world attending conferences in uh, philosophy conferences in different countries he spoke to leading experts leading authorities in these various traditions and actually i would say one of the great values of this book is his experiences he'll he'll say oh i went to this uh, th- conference on islamic philosophy and here's what happened and here's some of the discussions that took place Or he'll say, I went to a discussion on Eastern philosophy in India, and I met such and such a scholar, and here's some of the conversations I had. These are some of the most intriguing, uh, some of the most fascinating passages in, in in this particular book. And he quotes extensively, not only from the primary and secondary sources, but also from some of the conversations that he had with leading scholars in the various fields. So what are exactly are the traditions that Julian Beghini focuses on in his book? Well, besides Western philosophy, which does receive some extended treatment, he talks about Middle Eastern philosophy, specifically philosophy in the Islamic tradition. And then he talks as opposed to say Zoroastrianism, which he doesn't mention in quite as much detail. And then from Indian philosophy, he talks a lot about the various Hindu traditions and writings, the Vedas, the Upanishads, and some of the other sources. Uh, He mentions Jainism in passing, but he doesn't give it quite so much attention. So clearly he's focusing on the central traditions, but occasionally he'll bring in some of the peripheral intellectual traditions as well. Uh, from Chinese traditions, he talks about Taoism, Confucianism, and the way these have been received up to more recent times. And then he also talks a little bit about some of the Japanese traditions, Shinto, for example, with its focus on reverence for ancestors and uh, worship of tradition. And, then, of course, Buddhism is a very special case because Buddhism originated in India in the what it was the sixth century BC with uh, Gautama, and then but it didn't take so much hold in India, but it spread over the centuries through China, and then from China it went through Southeast Asia and also through Korea to Japan, and along the way it took on different forms. So there are various forms of Buddhism in these different countries, and and Beggini talks a little bit about some of these. Now the actual way the book is organized is quite interesting. I'm going to read you the, the titles of the primary sections of the book just to give you an idea how the book is laid out. So the book itself falls into five parts and each of these five parts roughly corresponds to the main branches of philosophy. So and the book itself is about 400 pages, 350 to 400 pages. So it's not exactly a heavy read. And as I say it's it's written in a a fairly accessible and entertaining style. So part one is how the world knows. That corresponds roughly to epistemology. Part two, how the world is, the metaphysical nature of reality. Part three, who in the world are we? That's the metaphysical nature of man. Part four is how the world lives, So that section primarily focuses on ethics, but also brings in a little bit of politics as well. And then part five is called concluding thoughts. That's a very, very short section. Uh, You may notice that there's no separate section here on aesthetics, on the nature of art. Beguini does occasionally bring in some discussions of architecture, literature and the visual arts, but more or less in passing. He doesn't devote any chapter or any extended discussion to aesthetics, the nature of art. He doesn't completely ignore it, but he doesn't devote an entire section to it. Now, within each of these parts, the individual chapters are organized not chronologically, not geographically, but topically. He focuses, each chapter is focused on a particular topic, which shows the relation, either the relationship between Western philosophy or Eastern philosophy, or the relationships within a particular tradition of Eastern or Middle Eastern philosophy. Let me give you some examples. So let me read you, first of all, the titles of the individual chapters of part one. This is how the world knows the section on epistemology. So the individual chapters are insight, the ineffable, theology or philosophy, logic, secular reason, pragmatism, and tradition. Let me say a little bit about theology or philosophy. This is a very important point. It's a kind of a thread, a kind of a leitmotif, which uh, wends its way throughout the book as a whole. One point that Baghini makes is that A distinctive aspect of Western philosophy, philosophy in the European tradition, is this separation of the sacred and the secular, the separation of philosophy proper from theology and religion, on the other hand. That's largely true, or at least that certainly was true in antiquity, and it's largely been true in modern philosophy, by which I mean post-Renaissance philosophy. Not exactly the case in the Middle Ages, though, and so sometimes those general those kinds of generalizations can be a little bit misleading. But one point that he makes is that in a lot of Islamic philosophy, for example, there isn't that distinction between religion and philosophy or between the sacred and the secular. In a lot of Islamic thought, it, the Quran really is the begin the starting point and the ending point of everything. Of every aspect of life for, for a, a Muslim revolves around the the Quran. So in in, in Islamic traditions, you can't really make that kind of neat and tidy separation. That's also true of a lot of the Eastern traditions, but in slightly different ways. What Beghini argues is that on the one hand in the Indian intellectual traditions, philosophy itself is rooted in, in mysticism. It's rooted in religious, theistic traditions. On the other hand, in, in a lot of Far Eastern philosophy, for example, in China, and I think this is true of Japan to some extent, uh, religion itself has become somewhat secularized or they do acknowledge, for example, the worship of ancestors, they do acknowledge something like a heaven. So, for example, historically, the emperor of China, the emperor of Japan was known as the son of heaven, but The role of an afterlife, the role of a deity, the role of uh, eternal salvation doesn't play quite the same central role in those Far Eastern traditions as it does in, say, the Judeo-Christian tradition or indeed in the Islamic tradition. So he he makes these very, very interesting distinctions. Uh, I should just mention in passing that Begini himself is a patron of the uh, UK humanists formerly known as the British Humanist Association. I don't know if he explicitly identifies as um, an atheist or an agnostic, but he has extensively written about the benefits of secularism, the benefits of humanism. But And here's the interesting point. He's not openly hostile to religion. So he he doesn't exactly fall in the same category as a uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, somebody who... Uh, attacks and criticizes religion in a very vocal sort of way, although Beghini has argued in favor of, you know, not teaching creationism in schools, but he's, and this is particularly important to the present volume, in which he tries to give a very balanced account of these different traditions. Essentially, an important part of his thesis is he's trying to build bridges between the Western and the Eastern traditions. So he doesn't uh, you know, attack religion. He doesn't attack theism as such. He tries to give as balanced and an honest as, as honest an account as possible. And that's really important to his thesis. Now, there are certain parts of the book where this r- r- leads into problems. And I'll mention specifically in, in this first section of the book, there's a discussion. Uh, he talks a little bit about The golden age of islam so this was a period from roughly the 8th century to the 13th century where in uh, islamic parts of the world and i mean the north coast of africa and the middle east there was this incredible flourishing uh, intellectual and culture of philosophy of scholarship in uh, mathematics the sciences architecture Art, uh, and this was during a period where where Europe was slumbering through its Dark Ages and Middle Ages. it's really significant, uh, and some of you may be familiar, that it was actually Islamic scholars, people like Avicenna, Averroes, who were translating Aristotle and disseminating his ideas long before uh, the Europeans discovered him. It was actually... Uh, towards the end of the Middle Ages, when certain Italian merchants were beginning to trade with with uh, the Mohammedans, that they they discovered some of these writings of Aristotle and brought them to Europe, and then eventually uh, Aquinas and others began writing I- in the Aristotelian tradition. But r- and right around the time when Europe was awakening from its medieval medieval slumber, that's when certain Schol Islam scholars were starting to clamp down on the study of these other philosophic traditions and saying, no, everything has to be rooted in the Quran. And that eventually brought to an end this golden age uh, in the Islamic world. And here Begini is treading on thin ice because on the one hand, he has to acknowledge that. The progress of the West during the period of the Renaissance and the succeeding eras, the Age of Reason and the Enlightenment, a lot of that had to do with secularism, with the rediscovery of Aristotle and his gradual ascension over Christianity and Platonism. And a lot of the decline in the Islamic world, culturally, economically, politically, had to do with the suppression of unpopular, uncomfortable ideas and a greater rooting. Of, of society and you know, what the Quran actually says. But Begini doesn't actually want to come out and say, you know, mysticism bad, reason good, because, you know, that would be judgmental and that would be Eurocentric. And so this, this leads him to a lot of problems. And uh, it's significant that in this particular chapter I'm referring to, Begini actually talks about a discussion he had with a scholar who is an expert in Islamic history and Islamic philosophy. And this particular scholar explains it well the rise of the west and the decline of the east was a result of european imperialism and europe imposing its culture on other traditions Mm -hmm. yeah so so this is an example of some of the weaknesses uh, that we occasionally encounter in the book in terms of its arguments in, in comparing western traditions with eastern traditions so continuing on let me tell you just a little bit about the second part of the book how the world is So the primary chapters here are time, karma, emptiness, naturalism, unity, reductionism. And then so that's all having to do with the metaphysical nature of reality. And then part three, which talks about the metaphysical nature of man, is uh, the chapters are these are shorter chapters. No self, the relational self, the atomized self. This actually brings me to one of the beefs I have with this particular book. There's a lot of virtues in this book. There's a lot of good things that Begini has to say about these different non-Western traditions. It's where he actually gets into comparing East and West that I think some of the weaknesses, some of the problems with contemporary philosophy start to come through. So, for example, the, the, the treatment of individualism. Something that I've heard Beghini say repeatedly, not only in this book, But in some talks and some podcasts that I've seen him do on YouTube is he says, well, one of the distinctions between the East and the West is, well, the uh, the West tends to be very secular and the East tends to be more religious. The West tends to be more focused on reason. The East tends to be more focused on other ways of knowing note the formulation here and then of course he says well the west tends to be more individualistic more focused on liberty whereas the east tends to be more collectivistic and more interested in harmony and in the interconnectedness of people etc and again that was in the west that wasn't entirely true in the middle ages but broadly speaking what he is saying does in some ways apply to the west in the, in the ancient world and in, in, to some extent in the post-Renaissance world, although look at some of the directions we're moving in now. But there's this whole idea of the West being focused on individualism. So something that Beghini often says in this book and in his other podcasts and discussions, he says, well, nobody would argue that the West is not individualistic enough. Really? I would argue that. And I know a lot of other people who would argue that and this whole idea of the atomized self. So there are long stretches where he laments the fact that we're, we're too individualistic in the sort of Europe and the North America, and we've lost this sense of connectedness with our, with our past, with our traditions, with each other, with, with other people. Uh, and, and this is where he says, well, we, we might be able to learn something by looking at how people live in in the east and how they address the question of individualism versus collectivism i think i do think there's a little bit of an element of relativ relativism or subjectivism here now Begini himself would deny this and i've actually seen interviews where he says no i'm not a relativist i'm not a subjectivist but you have to look at what a philosopher actually says not necessarily in what he says about himself Uh, Now, I'm going to tie this in with uh, discussion. Let me just briefly summarize for you part four of the book. Here are the chapters in part four. Harmony, virtue, moral exemplars, liberation, transience, Impartiality. Now, I'd like to say a little bit about harmony because this is an important point. And it's something that comes up a lot in his discussions, particularly of Chinese and Japanese philosophy. It's particularly interesting for me because this very topic came up recently in Scott McDonald's ARI roundtable just last Saturday. He talked a little bit about his experience in China and the, the philosophy and the culture and the politics there. And indeed, Harmony is a very central concept in a lot of Chinese thought. For example, in Taoism, there's a lot of discussion of harmony with nature. In Confucianism, there's the harmony with tradition, with one's ancestors, with the family. And the point that Scott brought up in his recent discussion is uh, in China, there's a lot of, there's an important stress placed on the individual knowing his place on society. So, on the one hand, the, the, the role of the government is to rule. That's that's their job. And the, the role of the individual is to know his place and to integrate into society. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very important distinction between East and West, and it leads to a lot of misunderstandings between people from these respective traditions. So there's this perception in the West of people from the Far East as being very conformist, as conforming to certain mores, certain norms. And the, the people there don't quite see it in the same terms. They, they would conceptualize it completely differently. Uh, actually, Begini tells, a, on this subject of harmony, Begini tells a very interesting story in this particular chapter of his book. While he was traveling through China, he actually visited the city of Chufu. That's the city where Confucius was born. And on his way into the city, he saw this big billboard, this advertisement, for a a housing project that was being built. And the advertisement actually mentioned the name of the philosopher Confucius, and it mentioned the concept of harmony as a way of promoting this particular building project. So even, so in in, in Chinese culture, even in advertising, this concept of harmony is very often invoked. So let me attempt a a kind of an overall summary of this book. I think anybody, wanting to dip their toes into the world of non-Western philosophy. This, I think, is one of the very few books out there which addresses the subject in a way that's accessible, readable. Bearing in mind some of these caveats I mentioned, some of these slightly misleading generalizations in characterizing the Western traditions versus the Eastern traditions, I do think this book has a lot of value to offer. Uh, The author really tries to be sympathetic in, in the way he explores these different traditions, and I would very much like to see some of our younger objectivist philosophers either reading this book or taking it as a starting point and doing some of their own individual work uh, and research in some of these other non-Western traditions. So with that said, uh, let me once again uh, acknowledge our sponsors for this episode. Quent Cordaire Fine Art has been making the world an even more beautiful place for 27 years. Specializing in romantic realist paintings and sculptures, the gallery's collection emphasizes themes which celebrate the moments of happiness, joy, and success possible to man on Earth. Acquire art you will want to live with by visiting them online at Cordair.com or in their Napa, California and Jackson, Wyoming locations. The new Ayn Rand portrait prints have arrived. You can visit the link in the description and the pinned comment to get yours today. For every print purchased with the code ARCUK, Quint Cordaire Fine Art will donate $25 to Ayn Rand Centre UK. Quint Cordaire Fine Art is celebrating their 27-year anniversary this month. Listeners can call Linda Cordaire to learn about the anniversary specials. Once again, the phone number is 307 307- Two six four one nine six four. Thank you so much to Quent Cordaire Fine Art for your generous support of everything we do here at the Ayn Rand Centre UK. Let me check in now with our dear producer, Daniel, for any
1: comments and super chats from our audience. We have a super chat from Mary-Aline, thank you so much. A super chat from Jonathan, thank you. And another super chat from Mary-Aline, thank you so much. But no comments but bonnie said uh that you did it again Nicholas. she just ordered a new book and she's commenting on because on wednesday when you had an interview she also with michael yeah with michael uh, she also went to book uh uh she also went to buy the book right away and also and also quick announcement announcement right after this we have the daily collective so that's gonna start in uh about five minutes and the main topic is going to be is x the new new coke talking about the elon musk twitter rebranding
0: okay well thank you very much daniel and thank you for very much to all our viewers for joining us today thank a special thank you again to quent cordaire fine art for their generous sponsorship of this program and of all the work that we do here in the objectivist community so with that Uh, Please do check out Dr. Julian Beghini's book, How the World Thinks, A Global History of Philosophy, one of the very few books on this particular subject and a book which, with a few minor reservations, I think does a really commendable job of introducing the reader to some of these traditions that many of us really don't know so much about. Thank you again to everyone, and I wish you all the best of premises. See you soon.